I don't know is not the end, it's the beginning. How can we use, you know, the great power of story to make meaning of our lives? And anybody and everybody can think about complexity and can ask questions. I ask you to be open to the relationship with country and relationship with elders wherever you may be listening. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today we don't have a guest. We have a whole team of guests and all of them actually believe that expertise in education lies in a collective rather than an individual approach. So today we have six amazing humans from the Educational Experiences team from the School of Cybernetics at Australian National University in Canberra. And their mission is to take cybernetics to the world through creating and delivering innovative, research-informed educational experiences for industry, government, and for our communities. We have Adrian Schmidt, who's a physics graduate with a passion for science communication and knack for sparking learning moments in tinker spaces and a fascination for the science behind the minutiae. Hello, Adrian. We've got Andrew Mears, uh, who has a background in photojournalism, political communication and video production, and a future in enabling others to build a better world, seeking patterns and hoping to join the dots. We have Jess Thompson, an engineer, business process designer and facilitator, and whose passion has been helping people make their work and lives easier, better, quicker, and more meaningful. We have Amy McLennan, whose background is in medical science, anthropology, and public policy, and who designs and facilitates educational experiences for groups with an emphasis on content, curiosity, and fun. We also have Ben Swift, an academic educator, artist, musician, and maker of open source tools for creative computing, looks for the intersection between software, creativity, and culture in today's world. And finally, we have Kelly Frame, who has experiences in secondary, tertiary, and adult education, and brings knowledge of English literature and history, and a passion for gender-inclusive teaching and a love of sci-fi books. Hello to all of you, team. It's great to be here with you. Hello, Luca. G'day. All right. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having us. You. This is going to be such a great ride as we do this all together with the seven of us. Uh, Amy, I'm going to come to you first, just to give us a bit of an insight around what cybernetics actually is, and also what is the big idea that you're exploring there as a collective, which is the reason that we've decided to be here all together. Sure. Well, we're just going to start with the small questions then, Luca. I, I can see how, see how this is going to go. Um, look, I suppose there are a few different ways into cybernetics. One that I quite like is that cybernetics is an approach to the world around us um, as comprising systems that contain at minimum people, technology, and the ecology. What does that look, look, what does that look like in practice? Um, well, I suppose we find ourselves at this moment in time in a global pandemic, and it's a really instructive example of how closely our ecosystems, um, whether they're the biological ecosystems around us or the environment more broadly, are tied really closely to technologies, whether they're technologies like health systems or technologies like vaccines or transportation mm. systems and people who, are of course, at the heart of all of that as well. Um, but it can also be a much smaller thing as well. So another example I think about some mornings is when you make your toast in the morning, have a look at your toaster. On the one hand, it's just a technological object, but on the other hand, it comprises uh, elements that have come from somewhere. It's been made and designed by people who have been somewhere. It's, it's creating nutrition for you as a user of the technology. Um, and all of those things are always tied together in anything that we encounter in the world around us. I, I'm really fascinated by 
Well, the fourth industrial revolution is something we talk a lot about on this podcast, you know, uh, and as anyone working in education, as all of us are here discussing these ideas today, you know, we have to visit the future often so that we can act more powerfully in the present and set up our students and our communities for this kind of uncertain world. And so often, often, you know, the idea here is no longer is there kind of the macro approach of you learn once and then you're done for life. It's a constant life of learning, life wide, lifelong, life deep. So I'd like to invite a couple of you just to respond to what's something you've learned recently in this strange world that we live in as we go to, you know, as we record this in July 2021. One thing that I have learned recently is I fell down the stairs and broke and dislocated and tore my elbow apart about two months ago. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which was hectic. And one of the things that I have been relearning really is how to type you know, they think that I'll make a full recovery. I'm really thankful for medical care, but I spent a lot of time at a computer. And so they've given me this wild new keyboard with different layouts and hands that are split apart. And so this prosthesis of a keyboard right. that governs the way that I interact with this device that I use all the time, I've been having to relearn, you know, my relationship to it and through it, the computer. And mm. so it's not so much a, a book I've read, but it's a skill that my my embodied self has having been having to relearn over the last few months, really. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's a great example of a physical side, but you know, like how we access information. Yeah, and you take it for granted. You just sit at your computer and you type until your keyboard changes, and then you have to relearn a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Well, and of yeah, course, so many great. of our relationships are built with and through a keyboard. That, of course, changes how quickly you can respond to someone or how you operate in a team environment. Everything. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. Anyone else? What's uh, something that you've learned recently? Uh, so I've got a five-year-old daughter and she's learning to read at the moment. And what has surprised me is that there's certain readers that she likes better. And I, I didn't even, I should have thought of this immediately, but I didn't even think about it. Someday she loves reading, learning to read, and someday she hates it. Um, so it took me ages to click that it was the content that was likely the cause of her hate and her love. But then I was like, what? As an educator, like I'm always about your head's got to be in it, your heart's got to be in it, your hands have got to be in it. Yeah. So she's turning the pages, she's using her brain. And I hadn't even thought about like whether she actually liked the content. So it's not really like, it's not a new thing that I've learned, but it was a good reminder that even the mm. smallest kids need to use kind of all their aspects to learn things. I know that, yeah. you know, young kids and the need of the education system not to beat creativity out of them is a theme that comes up a fair bit on your podcast, Luca. And so, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to explore those spaces today, but certainly there's there's always interesting stuff to look at when we look at kids and the way they learn. Oh, absolutely. I mean, many of us and many of the listeners would know, you know, if you want to see true creativity, you go down to your five-year-old daughter, you know, and, and talk to you know, look at divergent thinking tests and, you know, the idea of, and there was so much convergence and this idea that there is a single answer, you know, how do we protect creativity as much as enable it? You know, it's a kind of key human part. Anyone else got an interesting story to share? About I was just going to pick up on that theme where we're at. And I've just come out of being on the master's teaching program at the School of Cybernetics. Uh, and being new to education, uh, for me, I was trying to work out how do you design an aha moment? Because in every 
class. I wanted a moment where people would remember something. And so we were doing often some embodied things where the whole were teaching algorithms. So we divided the students mm. into three groups and they had to work together as three algorithms. That was basically how a computer worked. Um, and then through that, there was a level of frustration because we were teaching machine learning, which is lots of failing, um, and learning have, having to not step in and solve it for them because the aha moment came yeah. through the frustration. And so I think allowing that to open up that what we're describing as productive discomfort. Uh, like and certainly that. from my photography practice, I was taught to look for conflict. And although I have been to what we would call conflict zones, um, it yeah. can be in a landscape, you know, where the sky meets the sea, a sunset, and looking for those, that's where the interesting bits are. And I think cybernetics opens up uh, many voices and how we hold those conversations and ideas. And to that sort of where I landed was that by embracing perspectives and being open to an aha moment in yourself is often inspired by others and then that enables new possibilities and to me that's mm. kind of what we're trying to create here the learning through that i love that the idea of the intersection yeah and pr productive discomfort or productive struggle as i've heard it described as well <laughs> yeah and how do you not save the learner sometimes you know enable them to go into that learning pit and struggle and the embodied nature, I think, is really interesting. You know, how do we, how do we focus on the effective side as opposed to just be cognitively driven and academically driven? How do we embody some of these ideas that could be so conceptual? Um, so I'd love, and I think you've just taken us there um, as well, uh, Andrew, in with your background in photojournalism. You know, looking at the, the conflict, the contrast. Why is what I, I don't know, would you describe yourselves as a transdisciplinary team? I mean, why does this, why does this matter at a university now? What we have, you know, the kind of the, the disciplines that have been for many of us so separate. You study physics over here and chemistry there, then you do English and then you do, you know, so, so how does it work? You know, give us a bit of a, a bit more of an insight into the work of the team. Um, so I'll, I'll jump in on that one. Um, we've had really interesting conversations about whether or not we even cope or like the word transdisciplinary because it still kind of suggests that there's that we're in Disciplines. little compartments and we're kind of <laughs> yeah. you know traveling in between them um mm. and so when we break down those barriers and we think about ourselves you know none of us are siloed in any of the activities that we do um we're all artists we're all creators we're all technical people and i think that that's been a learning journey certainly for me you know coming from an english literature education background to being told you're a technical person you're you know part of a cybernetics team um and i think that's a really key message that we have to model and live but when we bring it um to the audiences that we're engaging with and for, for, for me in particular when we're bringing it to young people you know we often lose our growth mindset when we start to put ourselves into categories um, and, mm. and young people will automatically say, well, I'm not a science person, I'm not a maths person, yeah. I don't have strengths here. And so they'll opt out of being part of the conversation. And what we find in cybernetics is it's like we really need people who have, you know, maybe humanities proclivities and, and other kinds of proclivities to be part of the conversations around, you know, technology. Um, so I think that's that's it's it's a challenge that we'll continue to work on as a team and hopefully mm. bring as an open question to the people that we work with. What is it to be disciplinary and what is it to break down that barrier entirely? Uh, that's a great answer, Kelly. And something I'd like to add to that as well. Um, Jess sent me a beautiful sort of definition of cybernetics from 
40, 50 years ago, which was that it's cybernetics is bridging the gaps uh, between different disciplinaries in a lot of ways. So it's so important that we have a team that has mm. covers so many of the disciplines and then collectively together, you know, everyone's in almost every conversation uh, so that we're getting every single opinion um, to get the best product as possible. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I've got many questions, even about how how do you structure the team so that it works that way? Because this this really is intersecting now with the, f- the future of work. You know, you are really kind of a, a quite an innovative team. The whole idea of, yeah, we're transdisciplinary, but we're trying to drop the transdisciplinary piece completely so that we can kind of reform into something that actually solves problems in a powerful way. Um, you know, this does not seem like, you know, the STEAM conversation has the same challenge, right? As soon as you define it, it becomes constrained within that definition. So, yeah, how do you, how do you work together? You know, what is it like collaborating? Uh, how, do you, how do you find a way to bring all of your unique genius and experiences? Well, I guess the one thing that we should be open about is that we've only been working together. The school has only existed for a little while and we're still figuring it out. Um, it's been, you know, incredibly enjoyable and, you know, productively discomfortable, if that's a word, to, to figure mm-hmm. it out. But I don't know if necessarily I – don't, I don't want to speak for everyone here. I don't, don't know whether other people feel the same, but I certainly don't feel like we have exactly nailed the workflows yet, although we've perhaps started tracing some paths in the sand that might reify into to more solid paths. Mm. I could give a, a good example of a project that we're currently working on. That'd be um, great. We're, we're delivering um, in conjunction with our wonderful leader, Professor Genevieve Bell, who's giving a keynote in New York, well, remotely in New York City. And yep. we're creating um, a learning experience for 4,000 New York City schools. And um, part of that project is thinking, well, how can we engage students, you know, in the affect part of it? And we're, we've mm. come together to actually create a short film and how that sort of translated is just, you know, we've we've uh, collaborated on what the, the story should be and so much of that, you know, what are the themes, what are the messages we're coming across and everyone's got a say in that. But it's the strange little unknown skills that we had that pop up, um, that come through, you know, Adrian's done some fantastic graphics works, um, you know, Jess has provided us with, well costuming and 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 and, and, and right. absolute you know kind of incredible ideas there and Ben's going to help us with the soundtrack and we're bringing in students and collaborators from outside the team so I think that's also a key thing like we're conscious of the diversities that we have um, within us mm. but we're really really keen to collaborate um, and get perspectives that are outside our team because we don't cover all bases either and then I think we cover quite a few though to be fair, you know, when you look at how how kind of unique each of you are, you know, it's uh, it's really really fascinating to think about. Well, uh, and it's, it's worth also then thinking beyond that about well, what in that case do we share? And mm. and I think one of the things that we share and that we share with maybe the original cyberneticians, without wanting to necessarily project myself too much into their shoes, is that we mm. are an incredibly mission driven group, and that our work is intended to inform and create a future that we all want to live in. And when cybernetics was first born as, as an agenda, um, the, the people that were involved in those conversations were standing at the, the edge of or, or the completion of the Second World War and they were standing at a moment of time where the world was in a way white noise. There was huge mm. pos- possibility and opportunity but it was also very real to them um, 
how technologies or knowledge or power could be used for real harm as well as real good. So we all, I'm sitting here looking at my colleagues in the room around me, I think it's fair to say yeah. that one thing we do all share in common is a real mission and a stated set of values that, um, that we want to be a part of creating a future we all want to live in. And, and on the on the topic of missions, I guess to bring it back to this, what is cybernetics? Question that we we started with off the top. One of the hallmarks of cybernetics is that it's not about systems that have a you know finite beginning and end, so much as systems that have a goal and a way of feeding back information about their current environment to you know use that information to achieve their goal. And then also when they get perturbed away from the goal to converge back upon it. And this goes back to what you were saying before, Luca, when when you were talking about no right answers and divergent rather than convergent kind of thinking. Mm. Even even more than that, it's not about reaching one endpoint or a multiplicity of endpoints, but it's about having a system which is aware of its own environment and feeding that information back so that even in the future when it is perturbed away, then it's designed such that it will kind of come back to some desired state. And obviously mm. the challenge is articulating that goal in such a way and designing the system that it kind of works, you know, rather than this platonic ideal of a system that does that where figuring out how to actually design it is left as an exercise to the reader. You know, we want to we want to build those systems and that's kind of, as Amy said, that this mission of cybernetics and especially in a learning context, thinking about it not as designing things with an end goal but designing systems that are robust to, to whatever goal and seeking and avoiding, you know, potentially bad futures as well. Yeah. Because yeah, we, I think most of us in the world, uh, slash all of us, you know, really do want a brighter future. You know, this idea of how do we be good ancestors, which is something that I really love, you know, it's kind of grounded in First Nations thinking as well, seven generations. You know, how do we think about our impact? Um, and the idea of mission being, you know, a driver between, you know, us working in the future, you know, particularly, you know, younger people, they're very mission driven, you know. Um, so take us through a little bit of the experiences then that you're trying to create, co-create uh, for learners that you support. Because I, I love the example of, you know, New York School, how do you do it? How do you create a documentary? How do you create kind of an artifact of learning? Like, you know, very project based. But, you know, it's, you're still nested within a, a large university, a large tertiary institution, many of which uh, are being significantly challenged by just how quickly the world is shifting around us. I mean, schools are certainly feeling that acutely as well. I think all of us, frankly, are feeling that right now um, with, you know, the restrictions, the on-again, off-again restrictions and the kind of complexity of the modern world, even when we're not in a pandemic. So what's your, are there any examples or learning principles that you kind of really think about? Um, I mean, Jess, you were talking about the idea of having like good, good learning for all of us is emotional. You know, where it taps into our hearts as well as our, you know, cognition. Um, but it's also very practical. We use our hands. So, yeah, take us through a few examples of what you're trying to, uh, how you're trying to deliver the innovative yet researched, informed um, experiences. Yeah, I mean, look, as Ben alluded to, we're at the very beginning of our journey around that. So, I think the next six mm. months for us are building capabilities and confidence within the team. And so I think we've been enabled by what I would call a permission structure, as well as um, uh, the ability by our director and the school um, mm. to do that work. So I absolutely pay respect to the ANU and Genevieve Bell in having a vision to give us space to try and get this right. 
Um, mm. So we began as an innovation institute then known as 3A in 2017 and that's now grown into a school which gives us a level of legibility uh, within the university setting as sitting within a college. Um, and so I think there's just a deep commitment to everything we do having a level of research-informed practice that then gets applied, questioned, iterated, tested, rehearsed, and there's a level of quality, and I would flip that and describe it as care. So with the New York City schools, there's a keynote, there's mm -hmm. a and a you have to help me here, Kelly. Um, <laughs> there's this sci-fi film, there's an education module, but then we've, uh, through some of the amazing work that Adrian and another one of our collaborators, Mark Thompson, have done, have created an origami object that you then make at home. So although this is virtual, ah, we're cool. very keen to give you some sort of tactile experience. So this will be a printed out at home and then you make an origami star. Um, but I'm treading on Kelly's amazing work and her leadership here. Um, so I think just a, a, a real commitment and care to what I would describe as professionalism and that journey experience that all of it is important um, from the very mm. first uh, interaction with us to hopefully long after and then perhaps a revisit at another time because we're not going to solve everything <laughs> straight away. Um, and so really just opening up those aha moments for people to... Um, have a level of an emotional connection and then some level of explainability either to themselves or others through that interaction is sort of, that's what I'm targeting. But hey, we're a diverse mm. team with diverse views. Well, I think, mm. I mean, another way in for me as well is um, last year, um, for the last two years, in fact, we've been really fortunate to be able to do a little bit of work with an Aussie filmmaker and Emmy Award winner, uh, Lynette Walworth, um, whose work is quite incredible and I totally recommend mm. you check it out. And one of the things that, that she teaches, which is, is well in line with, with cybernetics as well, is to maintain a position of not knowing. And on the one hand, that really works when you're working in systems because it means that you maintain not only humility but an inquisitiveness about what's going on in other parts of the system rather than assuming that what you know is what's universal to everybody. Um, I think that maintain a position of not knowing equally applies in, in this case. So on the one hand, we don't know because we haven't done it yet. But it also allows us to open up a series of questions. So if I maintain a position of not knowing, then one of my questions is, where do people learn? And the answer to that is, well, not always in educational institutions or research yeah. facilities. Um, you know, it's yeah. everything from commercial television to, I mean, we've. it will be no surprise to the team that I'm thinking about everything from vending machines in airports. Yeah, the vending the, machine things comes up a fair bit, actually. Uh, through to <laughs> escape rooms, which we've been playing around with as different ways to learn how to engage with each other to um, mm. kind of Indigenous approaches to learning and passage of information and connecting with country. I mean, there are loads of different forums and, and ways in which people um, learn in the world around mm. us. Um, mm. And education institutions and models don't have a monopoly on that. Um, so I think it, we're really open at the moment, exploring a lot of a lot of open space and, and trying to learn more about where people learn and what we can take away from that too. I mean, I'm curious, Luca, you know, when you heard about a school of cybernetics, what sort of learning experiences did sprung to mind for you? Oh, well, uh, you know, there's a stereotype around anything to do with CS or computer science, you know, like, which, which is, you know, everyone's sitting with their headphones on kind of just typing away at a keyboard. So, you know, this is this idea, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of undoing, relearning kind of the role that 
that kind of the horizontal plays in the world. You know, I'm I'm fascinated, Ben, by the idea of you know a neo generalist or a deep generalist. You know, working alongside the kind of hyper specialist world. Yeah. And you know how do you know many of you, for example, I would say have great expertise in communication, um, and you're also technically skilled. And that, that's the great challenge for us. You know, it's not just the research, it's how it's communicated and understood and experienced, I think. so. Uh, yeah, I know Stu Card's yeah. been banging on for a while about moving beyond T-shaped people to pie-shaped people where you have two Correct. deep pillars as well as that breadth across the top. And, you know, I'm sure that there are now M-shaped people. And you said I was pie. Going, oh, I imagined bacon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> I mean the Greek letter, you know. <laughs> The, the, the yeah, no, flap it on yeah. the top, <laughs> a T with two downstrokes. Yeah, there's a, there's like, a breadth yeah, of knowledge, part, yeah. but there's also potentially two or, or even more deep disciplinary knowledges. And that, mm. so even within the individual, there is that opportunity for cross-pollination and, and you know, cr- creative tension, as it were. Yeah. it's so, I just think it's so critical. That, uh, and this is why I'm very excited, I think, by your work is – in some ways, it's the barriers, the kind of artificial dichotomies that we create. You know, we we all think we live in a in a spreadsheet uh, or a table kind of world, but I just think it's a Venn diagram all the time. It's kind of my evolving view. Everything overlays, right? Even when we talk about complex dynamic systems, for example, all the different factors that interplay, and particularly with our conversations here about learning, well, it's always the, you know, the social meets the emotional meets the cognitive meets the physical meets the cyber now, I suppose, as well. You know, it's like another dimension to add to the, the lives that we live. We talk um, a lot in uh, cybernetics about um, <clears throat> systems that have a technology component and a people component and an ecology component. And I made a little diagram. There was a Venn diagram. And what we realised is that so many things just live in the, the intersections between the things. We're like, you can't yeah. even define them as different things. Yeah. it's. I mean... You wouldn't, all of you wouldn't be surprised to know that my, my metaphor, in fact, the metaphor for the learning future is an organic one, not a mechanistic one, you know, because I think good learning is about the conditions and the features of the ecosystem in which we experience life, including schools and universities and, you know, come, you know workplaces, rather than the levers and the cogs that sometimes we think about, you know, using an industrial metaphor. I don't think it holds true, particularly when you think about human growth and development. And I think it was, Ben, your point around, you know, creativity or just, you know, with your, you know, the idea that we are, all of us are kind of hardwired to learn and yet we're still trying to school people. And that's the problem, actually, that, you know, schooling and learning are very different. I mean, maybe it's another Venn diagram because it always is, but, uh, you know, how do we do more learning and think about learning ecosystems rather than the schooling institution um, and bring in everybody these kind of insights and diversity? So, yeah, I'd love us to go into that world. Like, what do you think? The well, I think you're working at the forefront, and I know you're a new team, but you know you're experimenting, and the not knowing mindset, Amy, that you spoke about is so key as a principle. Um, but what do you think if we design this the kind of learning ecosystem correctly? What do you think the future of higher education could look like? You know, for all students across all faculties, you know, having been kind of starting off as an innovative kind of project yourselves, and now expanding out into a team. Um, Who's going to tackle that one? As someone who recently graduated from university, 
right. and seeing this transition that particularly our physics department did where they were flipping their classrooms, doing lots of online videos and then in-person workshops where the, the focus is on hands-on doing the thing, um, mm. the actual detail work that happens at home, you know, read a book, learn the details there and then come and apply them and have help there when you're applying them. And my experience in that was so fantastic. So I, I really do see um, as much of this helpful hands-on approach to actually applying um, as many of the things that we're learning as possible. And I think that's also something that we're really applying in the team as well, is that all the educational experiences that we do, we want to have uh, a thinking component, a hands-on component, and then mm. also to have that emotional response as Andrew was talking about before. So in terms of the future of university, I really hope that they have those three components. Anyone else want to jump in? I don't know, but it also raises for me another question, which is what will the place of higher education and learning be in society and in our own mm. lives and life courses? And I think, mm. you know, we do have we do have a model which kind of ties together an educational journey quite often with a life course journey and this idea that there is a certain point in time in which you will go through a certain kind of education or t part of the education system. So I, I don't have an answer for you, mm. Luca, but I do have another question, which is where in our lives will whatever higher education of the future look like or universities of the future look like, where in our lives will they feature? Where and when maybe in mm. a time sense as well? Yeah, I think we probably do expect some sort of diffusion from the, you know, th things are both in time and in space currently up to this point, you know, pretty like firewalled off from one another, uh, at mm. least from an institutional sense. But I think that, you know, we have been through in Australia and globally a huge period of upheaval in the university sector, you know. Yeah. In many cases, there's been a bunch of sad goodbyes. There have been, you know, fresh opportunities mm. created because that always happens at moments of, of rupture. But, yeah. you know, we are trying to figure out that new thing. And I do think that, you know, a diffusion and... and threading these things in, in maybe more like portable or bite-sized or, you know, some, I'm not sure what the right word is, but finding mm. s smaller spaces to, f to squirrel little chunks of learning into. Um, and then also, you know, but while still retaining some big picture where we, we join things up and we provide the space for, for the individuals and, and communities to see the connections themselves and, and obviously that's kind of often where the learning happens as well when you take the building blocks and you put them together in a new way and you go aha as andrew was mm. saying before yeah that's really interesting i mean i it's easy it's always fun to speculate isn't it like, yeah. what's going to happen i mean but to be fair universities are, are, are pretty resilient institutions yeah they really are about a thousand years of, you know, of history you know out of morocco and and then of course italy and then in the uk um so I don't think they're going to go anywhere, but it's very interesting to think about like every other organization in the world, how they'll adapt and how they'll shift and transform. Well, uh, um, and, you know, the old saying from the business world is if you, you innovate or you evaporate in some ways, you know, and we're seeing that we're seeing the carcasses of companies, you know, across the world, you know, the old Kodak example or the old Blockbuster example. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember Blockbuster, which is great. Um, but, you know, these are, you know, our young people today just have, these are not examples because they, they failed to see what was changing in the world. I think the trends, and if COVID's done anything, it's been an accelerant. 
You know, I think Scott Galloway talks about this quite well, a business professor from the US. You know, it's accelerated the shift, the decade of experience uh, of, of shift in, in eight weeks in some industries. So I suppose my next question Although, is Luca, just on that about, last question, I do, oh yeah, think, I, do, yeah. I do think your comments make me think as a team it is worth us doing a little bit more reflection on this because if we are ostensibly building what could become the future of a yeah. university program or a, um, a, a future of cybernetics within or outside of universities, then the decisions we are making now will create that future. So I think it is worth us thinking about, well, what kind of future do we, are we implicitly envisaging when we are doing our work? Mm. And is that where we want to go? And if not, how might we think about that differently? Because the future out there isn't predetermined for us to guess out. The future is one we are building actively and we're really lucky yeah. to be a part of helping to build. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great reflection. It's a great attitude. And I think it, I mean, when I think about the trends and the conversations and the work that I, I'm lucky to do, now, you see some really clear things coming out. And I think you were talking about this as well before, um, Adrian, you know, with your recent experience at a university. You know, the idea of shifting the agency from teacher-centered through to kind of student-centered through to student-driven, you know, and I really think that's a trend that we're seeing. So agency-led learning where people are creating consistently and failing as they do so in a productive way, we hope, Andrew. <laughs> Slightly slight discomfort, but ultimately getting somewhere um, and exhibiting their learning. I think it's just a really interesting thing to notice. And I do hope, Amy, that you're documenting, you know, how the team is working together because it might be really interesting to reflect over the coming years, you know, as, you know, one of the more innovative groups that are working in this higher education space, you know, what works, what doesn't and how. Because I would also say that this, what you're exploring here is, I don't want to use the word transdisciplinary now because you've gone into my head. Just go with undisciplined. Well played, yeah. Cool yeah. Undisciplined that. team. <laughs> <laughs> this, this kind of oh, very adaptable and um, diverse experience that you have, uh, I, I really feel that's what we're missing in schools as well. We still segment way too much, uh, particularly when we get into the senior secondary. And, of course, we do that because we care about young people and their academic results to go into university. So there's a whole conversation about the ATAR, and I think in 10 years' time, we do not, that conversation is well and truly over. We have something new, which hopefully is far more personalized, a learner profile, for example, an education passport, a portfolio. It's always an interview, because that's how we humanize the world around us. I'm sure we could use some AI. I'm sure one of you is working on, like, what's the AI say about potential and career design and life design? Um, yeah, it's just such an interesting time to really consider these things and think about 2030 and sustainable development goals and if we're tracking in any real meaningful way towards many of them. Your discussion about the future of higher ed and I was thinking there around process application, obviously this, you know, these things are five, ten-year plans and funding models behind them and, as you mentioned, have evolved over centuries. But I was trying to think, what's the pull-through there? And, and to me it's sort of sat, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Luke, on this around that curiosity question and asking questions around the world as it is and the world as it could be. And to me, so, so how do we sort of lean into that and, and satisfy that? And so what's the flip of that? You know, what's the accomplishment, the degree, the award, the attainment of that curiosity? And then you move on to the next mm -hmm. curiosity. You've learnt that and now you need to learn that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do you amplify curiosity. Well, I'm just one of seven, seven educators, it turns out. In the room. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
it's I, I love this and this was uh, shared earlier on the podcast as well which is how do we stay curious a little longer and actually it's actually how do we stay curious always and I think it starts by asking better questions I just don't think we ask very good questions often I mean I was when I was a teacher in a school I don't think my questions were all that profound um, and so putting the question on the table and then moving away from instructor to ed, like experienced designer, which is very clearly a theme for the work that you do. You know, we need to think more and more actually about the pedagogy or the andragogy or the hugeagogy, if you get super academic, right? Like self-determined learning. You know, what do I care about? I'm going to go and do that. And you look at the best entrepreneurs that are trying to go to space or trying to solve, you know, significant ecological challenges in the social enterprise space. They're using their agency and they're, they're doing so because they're deeply curious about what is possible and what the world could be. So how do we tap into the latent agency of millions of young people that are sitting in classrooms, sitting in universities around the world, and sometimes not sitting in either of them, but are just kind of in a community? Because it really is, uh, it's kind of up to all of us, but it's particularly up to the young people. Um, and in terms they've of- They've got a longer runway. In terms of agency, I, I do think that, you know, the ideas of cybernetics as systems which you know, sense their environment and act accordingly. You know, too often in education, it's a there's no closed loop. You know, there's the the student, either the teacher delivers the content to the student and that's it, or the student writes the assignment or the essay or whatever and feeds it into the the giant edifice and and then that's kind of it. And so finding ways to close those loops to you know to really, again, much more than just assigning a number to things, which is always that, you know. It's just pervasive in the education systems in which we we work, but, you know, finding ways to go beyond the numbers and really what is the most useful thing that we can feed back to the student or that they can feed back to us about that experience such that Mm. we can guide their next step and, you know, keep them curious a little longer. I love that, Ben. Um, And I think... um, I I think it's spot on. Your your question Mm. about framing questions, Lucas, so... Prior to the School of Cybernetics existing, um, we we worked in the 3A Institute, which, um, as Ben said at the beginning, was kind of like the the cocoon from which um, the School of Cybernetics has has come out. Um, I've been reading the Very Hungry Caterpillar a lot with my yeah. one and three year olds. <laughs> I, I see exactly where <laughs> yeah. you're going with you that. Yeah, Valet Eric and, Carl. Um, and um, yeah, when we set up a master's program, which was partly about well, how do we um, how might we bring what we're doing into being, let's try and build up an educational program and think about what we teach. And the first semester's program was all about teaching people how to frame questions. And it's easy to say teaching people how to frame questions. It's much harder when you're giving a blank piece of paper and said, create a course that will help people to frame questions about complex systems. And what we've found over over running that course and iterating a few few years now... um, is that it takes a, a combination of things. So it takes subject matter expertise and knowledge of mm. some of the systems you're in to be able to articulate key words or key concepts and be able to communicate with people in other disciplines in their language, uh, not necessarily having one set definition for everything, but understanding that there are multiple underst- uh, ways to, to read something. It takes mm. a certain amount of creativity and being able to look at the world differently again and to uh, be willing to try something new. Some questions don't always work. And I think something that you mentioned, a word that you mentioned before, I think is really relevant here is it also takes time. Mm. And I think creating the time to hang in ambiguity and to explore questions is really complicated. Even for this team, you know, we're really lucky to be in an environment which has given us a little bit of space and time to start exploring how we might work together and where we go from here. 
But I think about the experience of even my experience in high school, the experience of, of, of school, school children today, they have so many things to do and so much fills yeah. up their time that creating and carving out the time to do things, same for school teachers, is incredibly challenging, but also really, really critical for these kind of um, bigger projects. I kind of think, well, what would it look like to have a high school course in framing questions? And I'm not entirely sure. But then every class does it differently in its own way. So, mm. If I can jump in on that too. Um, we've, we, yeah. we had our master's uh, cohort graduate yesterday and uh, Professor Bell oh, uh, threw out a line there from Nabokov and I'm going to, I'm sure I'm going to misquote this and I apologise, but um, that curiosity is the purest form of insubordination. Um, yeah. And so it's this lovely idea of like, you know, I think we shy away from spending time with our young people and spending time particularly with adults um, asking questions because we rush to the answer. Um, and that's kind of where I guess that, that dichotomy between, shall we say, schooling and learning that you brought up earlier, which is schooling is something that we say, here is the answer, let me uh, lay it down on you. You need to be able to fit into these answers and you need to be able to you know, regurgitate them and get them right because they've been decided for you. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, questions questions just blow everything wide open. Um, and so I think yeah. that's something that we certainly want to lean into and, and to connect it even further to this idea about, you know, what does student-centred, student-driven learning look like around agency? But I think authenticity is part of it and it's about impact, you know. Like if a student creates, writes an essay, submits it, never thinks of it again, never looks at it again, yeah. it's kind of screaming into the void. But if curiosity <laughs> is a way of, you know, reordering the world, then mm. let's think about, you know, impact from that level to impact to, you know, creating educational experiences where they are empowered to change the world. And I think that's the nice kind of line that I draw between curiosity is that it brings us to empowerment. Um, and that's something we definitely need in every educational institute and every learning space outside of that. Yeah, it's, it's it really is empowering. Yeah, I love, I love this idea. It's empowering others to then forge their own path of impact and contribution, you know? And of course, we're all trying to forge our own path at the same time, because we are the system in which we function ourselves, you know? Uh, team, it's been such a delight to speak with all of you, all six of you. And it's been, uh, it's just been really interesting to, to delve into the different perspectives. You know, it's something that um, I've learned from this conversation. So to, to kind of close this out, I'd love each of you to think about what is a take home message in a sentence? that you'd like to contribute, something that you're musing on, that you're curious about, Kelly, perhaps, you know, that, that you think is or a very good design principle for the kind of emerging future of learning and, and experience design that we're all trying to create for, for learners uh, in every setting, but also for employees as well, you know, um, or team members in workplaces. Because again, curiosity and human imagination just are becoming increasingly valuable assets for this future world. So who wants to lead us off? I put my hand okay. up. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> Go for it. I think I'm going back to the point about you've got to engage your head and your heart and your hands. So Adrian's point about you going into the lab to do the physical thing or my daughter's point that she needs to have her emotions and her, her thoughts and her hands all involved in this learning process. So as facilitators and education designers and as learners... If we can have all of those aspects happening all at once, I think everything we will learn will sink in better and have more impact mm. and more longevity. Yeah, love it. 
Uh, sure, we can go around the table. So <laughs> go for it. Go for it, Ben. I until I joined this team was working in the School of Computing, like the traditional School of Computer Science, uh, and even in that space. I had the privilege of teaching a class called the Laptop Ensemble, which is about using computers to make music. That's open to both music students and computer science students. And often people kind of, I think people at first blush kind of had this thought that the the rationale for that course was this sort of neoliberal, let's give the music students these marketable skills in computing and kind of train them up with something that they can actually use to put food on the table. But my experience... And, you know, those of the people around me was much more that the real growth that we saw in our students was in the computing students realising, you know, facing a problem where there was clearly no one right answer. Like there's no one mm. right answer to a when the, the problem is create a piece of music and forcing them to wrestle with that situation because all of the interesting problems in the world don't have one right answer. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the things I think we've hinted at today that, you know, the influence of the arts in the way that we, we think th- mm. through technology and stuff, you know, that's one of the things I'm really keen to keep thinking through. How do we not use the arts as a... How do we not kind of use this intersectional, you know, music, technology, creative practice, computing sort of intersection mm. as a way to, like, justify skilling up creative yeah. types so that they can get jobs, but actually how do we force... You know, the people who like having one right answer to wrestle with that ambiguity. So that's that's yeah. a thing I'm thinking through at the moment. Yeah, that's great. Of course, it's a question. Is your text <laughs> <is excellent. laughs> Brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, I have another question. Uh, and that is, great. in everything we do, whose country are you on? Mm. And what are you going to do about that? And so here I would like to acknowledge that we in this room are on Ngunnawal and Nambri country. Here in Canberra, and I pay respects to elders past and present. And in doing so, acknowledge that there's 65,000 plus years of story, of learning, knowledge and know-how. And although we have a beautiful campus and we have a beautiful building we've just inhabited and we had a wonderful welcome to country by Uncle Wally Bell yesterday that's still resonating with all of us, I think, that we're learning from country. Yeah. And that's an open system that is always communicating to you. And I just ask you to be open to that, to the relationship with country and relationship with elders, wherever you may be listening. Well, that's wonderful, Andrew. And I, uh, the only thing I contribute is we get so excited about invention and the newness. And I often think it's, it's probably remembering that <laughs> actually we should pay more attention to from incredible millennia of uh, human habitation, culture, language, and knowledge, and wisdom. Thank you. Um, Adrian, let's go to you. Yeah, I guess um, my message would be the sort of the thing that I've been trying to think about is a lot um, starting here as well, is to embrace the uncomfortableness and sort of the answer of I don't know and that's okay, mm. but not to stop there. Um, and, you know, I don't know is not the end, it's the beginning. Yeah. That's great. Love it. Kelly? Uh, Touching on what Andrew said too, I think I've been mulling over uh, the importance of story and knowing that story is an ancient and powerful way that we learn and I think we we remove story from our classrooms and from our learning experiences and from our work. And so I really want to know how can we use, you know, the great power of story to make meaning of our lives. 
Um, mm. So that's my that's my ponderance. I love it, Kelly and uh, Amy. Luke, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. When we came in to the recording studio today, um, the team said, well, we've listened to some of Luca's podcast and he always asked this question at the end about one thing to take away and we've decided in your absence that you will be the person to answer that question. So I was sitting here gleefully when you decided to ask everybody in the room that question instead of just me. Very well played. I saved you to last, Amy. It's you know. fitting that you're last, Amy. <laughs> you can the bring it home. Yeah, excellent. Um, well... Um, I suppose now that I've had time to prepare um, an answer for mm. you, here you go. Next time you make toast, have a think about the ways in which that toaster connects to people, connects to technology and connects to the environment. Who made it? Where did it come from? How has it travelled? What kind of impact is it having every time you are using the electricity? How do you know? How might it change your health in the future? What are some of the risks associated with it? Would anybody have access to this kind of thing? And if not, why? What did people in the past use? Who's designed this? Who designed the buttons? What was their job? Who sold it? Who else was involved in it? Have a think and just ponder that toaster as you do it. And that led us up to a bigger kind of comment from me, which is we can't do this alone. And anybody and everybody can think about complexity and can ask questions. So if you're interested in hearing more or you want to get involved, Get in touch. Our contact details will hopefully be in the podcast notes, show notes afterwards. Get in touch. We'd love to hear more about um, what other people are thinking. Um, If you can contribute in some way, if you'd like to work together, we are all ears and all open and all learning at the moment. Fantastic. Amy, I'm never going to look at my toaster in the same way again. (laughs) You know, the real system. Yeah, the system behind everything. It's it's kind of, it's mind-blowing, actually, when we think about complexity. Uh, and so thank you for what you're doing. It's really exciting work. Um, thank you for joining us today, Adrian, Andrew, Jess, Amy, Ben, and Kelly. Um, and I wish you well as you continue to design educational experiences, kind of step into the unknown and ask the good questions. Questions like, where did your toaster come from? <laughs> it's a great, it's a really great question. And it, it sparks that curiosity in all of us. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, thank Luca. You. Thanks, Thanks, Luca. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.